0: Welcome to the Econ Pop Podcast, where we sift through the haystack of popular culture to find the needle of economics within, and then stab you with it. I'm your host, Andrew Heaton. Our website is econstories.tv, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, or find links and other content related to today's conversation. Joining me today are Steve Horwitz, the Charles A. Dana Professor and Chair of the Department of Economics at St. Lawrence University, and Paul Cantor, the Clifton Waller Barrett Professor of English at the University of Virginia. And I'm Andrew Heaton, a baritone. Steve, Paul, welcome back. Good to be back again. Good to be back. Well, today we're discussing The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, uh, which was a delightful film. I watched it recently for the first time and was very glad that I did so. Uh, Because it's a little bit older, not all of our listeners necessarily have seen it. So if you're listening to this at home and you haven't seen The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, uh, first of all, any old-timey prospector you've ever seen made fun of in any other movie where it's you know this guy like dancing and oh old timer blah blah blah. it's all based off of this archetypical old timer that came out of the the treasure of the sierra madre and then also I, i've heard people reference badges we don't need yep. no stinking badges that's where it's from since yeah. i was a kid and i finally saw where that came from it's, it's from these these uh, banditos that are running around <sighs> in the movie it's there's yes. lots of fun stuff in there
1: yeah, it's the classic representation of Bandidos. Yep, yep. Pick it up in Magnificent Seven, for example.
0: Uh. Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful film, and the, the uh, it's it's starring uh, starring Humphrey Bogart, who plays bearded Humphrey Bogart. And uh, uh, a couple of other people. And they're, they're all going off into the desert uh, in Mexico looking for gold. And we see how two of them are more or less unchanged uh, over the course of the film, although they're presumably wiser and have, you know, an interesting bonding story. Whereas uh, Humphrey Bogart becomes more and more morally decrepit, uh, driven by greed over the course of the film. Uh, what, what did you all think of it? I, I hadn't seen
2: this For a long, I saw a long, long time ago, I'd forgotten most of it. God, it was a good movie.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's a very wonderful movie. In the early days of television, it was one of those films they showed over and over again. So I grew up with it. It was very nostalgic to see it again.
0: It it was interesting, too, in that that for economic purposes, they they kind of beat us to it they, they actually just outlined a couple of economic theories over the course of the film the the old timer reasonably early on there's a scene where Humphrey Bogart is hanging out of this kind of Mexican flop house and uh, they're they're listening to this old guy wheeze about uh, you know all the days of prospecting behind me and all these different things it changes man and he he brings up that the reason gold is worth so much is because for every nugget of gold that's found a hundred men were searching for it and uh, so he he came up with this this theory uh, uh, that he was verbally espousing that basically gold is only worth something because so many people are all actively trying to get it and if you add up all of the hours of manual labor it ends up being a thousand hours per nugget of gold which uh, I believe is the the labor value theory uh, which uh, I think we would all find abhorrent
2: Yeah, I almost, I mean, you know, I was enjoying the movie, and at that moment, I just burst out laughing, right? It's a classic bit of labor theory of value that somehow... I've got the exact
1: words if anyone wants to hear them. uh, Yeah, go go ahead. ahead. Yeah, Yeah, it's, say, answer, this is uh, the Walter Houston character. uh, Say, answer me this one, will you? Why is gold worth some 20 bucks an ounce? And Dobbs says, I don't know, because it's scarce. That's closer to the truth. But then Howard says, a thousand men say go searching for gold. After six months... Months, one of them's lucky. One out of a thousand, his fine represents not only his own labor, but that of nine hundred and ninety-nine others to boot. That's six thousand months, five hundred years, scrambling over a mountain going hungry and thirsty. An ounce of gold, mister, is worth what it is because of the human labor that went into the finding and the getting of it. Dobbs says, I never thought of it just like that. And I says, Well, there's no other explanation, mister. He never studied marginal utility. Say, no, <laughs> no, no, gold isn't know. it gold itself ain't good for. For nothing except making jewelry with and gold teeth. That's that you know, seems to me that's worth that's something. Pretty good. That's pretty <laughs> good. Yeah.
0: Well, and yeah, it's, no, that, it's a shame that, that, that that's not true because if the labor, value of, of the, or the, the labor value theory were correct, that would mean that however much effort you put into something would dictate the price, right? So my books would be selling for $100 more right. per copy that, if that were the case that, as look, opposed to what I, people want to pay for
1: them. When I try, try to explain to my dumbfounded colleagues what's wrong with the labor theory of value, I say it's also the student theory of value. That's right. How could you give me a C on this paper? I work so hard on it. it. And the answer is it's a C paper. It right. doesn't matter how hard you work. Yeah,
2: Yeah. no, that's that's exactly it. And and uh, by the way, Paul, you know, if you're looking for a second career,
1: you could do that prospector role. I yeah, think. that was pretty
0: good. That was a good addition. <laughs>
1: hey, Walter Houston only got it because he was the director's father. Oh, is that.
0: So, so to, to summarize, the, the labor value theory is this just basically the more effort and sweat you put into something, the more it's worth, right? So yeah, and I... it's worth, right. And, it, and you can generalize it a bit. Andrew, I mean, it's it's basically uh,
2: a, a, what what people call a cost of production theory of value, which suggests that that the value of an output, the value of a final good, is determined by the cost of the inputs that went into making it. This one just focuses on labor, but you could see you could see the same theory being about capital or whatever. Um, and and that you know that theory says that the value of outputs derives from the value of the inputs that went into it. And in fact, that's completely backwards. You can think of that as being the equivalent of, of uh, geocentrism, right? It, it's got it exactly backwards. Yeah. And what, as Paul said, what happened in the, the marginalist revolution in, in the 1870s in economics is we recognize that it's the other way around. Um, it's that the value what makes labor valuable is that it contributes to the production of goods that human beings find valuable for making jewelry and filling teeth for example
1: so and here here's the thing it's it's the principle of imputation mm-hmm. the real question is why do people spend so much time and put so much effort to find a gold it's because it is valuable right uh, <laughs> (laughs) They kill themselves to get it because it's so valuable. And this is the subjective theory of value uh, that gold is worth a lot because people want it. And, of course, there is this relation uh, between its value and its scarcity. And that's where you get into the real theory of marginal utility. Uh, It was the great... You know, Adam Smith... uh, created the labor theory of value. It was then, ironically, picked up by Karl Marx, uh, who was getting it from David Ricardo, who was uh, Smith's disciple. And it's true, they, uh, the, the early classical economists didn't understand the subjective theory of value. They couldn't understand what's often called the water diamond paradox. Uh, why are Water seems essential to life and diamonds are frivolous. Why are diamonds more valuable than water? And Smith and Ricardo came at the idea, well, you really have to work hard to get diamonds. That's why they're more valuable. Uh, but again, the reason too, people work hard to get them, because people value diamonds, and they reward you for putting this effort into it. They don't reward you for some some other things you might... You, know, you could dig up anything and say, hey, this is worth as much as a diamond. I dug as much to find it, but that's not the point. The diamond's value comes from uh, subjective judgments.
2: Yep, and, and the fact that any any given diamond is a much bigger portion of the total supply of diamonds right uh, than is the case for any given unit of water compared to the total supply so so water's what matters as paul said earlier is the marginal value here so uh, the value of sort of one unit right yeah. and so any you know a gallon of water has very little value because there's so many substitute gallons out there yeah. but, it, but a carat of diamonds on the other hand you know there aren't as many substitutes there aren't the, the alternatives aren't there it's a much it's, it's much more scarce compared to the to the total
1: yeah and there's a there's a line in the film water's precious mm-hmm. sometimes it could be more precious than mm-hmm. gold and that's indeed true but the people go wrong when they think they're comparing all the all of water and all of gold. But right. that's not what you're doing. Right. You're comparing the marginal unit of gold with the marginal unit of water. I mean, basically with water, you say, if I lose this ounce of water, there's a lot more ounces of water where that came from. Right. That's not true with gold and diamonds. And we see that at the end of the film too, right? Where the
2: burrows are, are more valuable, perceived yes. to be more yeah. valuable than the yeah. gold, right? Yeah. And it's, and the band, the, yeah. the guys don't recognize that, right? And it's not, you know, it's it's in that... You know in that context, their perception is such that that those burrows were the most valuable thing there uh, I mean they granted they were made a mistake about what what was in the bags right but still they 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 believed the burrows were the valuable thing
1: It's funny because the film really does alternate between this very strongly stated labor theory of value and the subjective theory of value uh, when they find that letter uh, from cody 's wife yep. uh, uh, she's written. I never thought any material treasure, no matter how great, is worth the pain of these long separations. Uh, And and then she says, we've already found life's real treasure. And that's the way human beings do operate. uh, They value things that they value for whatever reason. And it's not always that they value diamonds or gold, but that's individual choices there. So uh, part of the film understands the subjective theory of value. It's (laughs) just so... Strong that they state the labor theory of value. Right,
0: the, the character does. I mean, presumably, yeah. It, yeah. It, it being a Hollywood film, I, I would guess that the, the writer was very sympathetic to that. But uh, you know, you, you, you do have this sort of you know likable uh, pioneer character that might have been might have been saying that. Uh, and I I think you're right about that too. I mean, it, it, it uh, the, the the you know subjective. Uh, But both individuals, you know, subjectively value things at different rates, but even different cultures have done different things at different times. Like, uh, I was reading a chapter uh, of, I think it was Guns, Germs, and Steel the other day, about how when, uh, when the Europeans would come into, I think, Central Africa, there was some tribe that used clams from a very distant, distant shore as their unit of currency, and the Europeans would trade them clams for gold, and they thought, these are the dumbest savages in the world yeah, because they're they're taking all of our, our clams for gold, whereas the savages on their end thought, these are the stupidest people on the planet, we're giving them rocks, and we're getting these clams in return, you know, it, it depended on where you want. Every
1: exchange, it's, it's a famous motif, yeah, Manhattan Island uh, bought for those uh, the bees. Uh, uh,
2: but at some level, every exchange is that, right? I mean, if I I go to Starbucks and buy a latte, what am I saying? I'm saying that the idiot Starbucks giving me giving up a latte for only four bucks, right? And Starbucks <laughs> is thinking, what an idiot he gave us four bucks for a stupid latte, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, and, then you, and You get, can view any exchange that
0: way. Yeah, you, you get exchanges for, for both, you know, time and and goods. Like, uh, you know, I, I moved to a different neighborhood in New York recently and my uh, my, my laundromat will wash and fold your clothes. So you just drop them off and then you, you pick them up and it, it's about $8 as opposed to doing it for $3 or so you're spending $5 to not... And for me, I I work a lot of hours. It's a great deal for me. Uh, Okay, and and that's an... Andrew, it's interesting you bring that up because there was one other huge
2: kind of bit of bad economic reasoning in this film that I have to talk about, which is toward the end when the the Holtz character, uh, uh, Tim Holtz character says... Well, when you look at it that way, I'm only out two hundred dollars. <laughs> what? Right. You just spent ten months. <laughs> Doesn't the opportunity cost of your time mean anything? <laughs> out two hundred dollars, you know,
1: convince your you know convince your family of that. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, uh, this film points to three of the most basic economic errors that have uh, that have become uh, embodied in common sense one is that the price of something flows from the cost of production another is that in an exchange is of two things of equal value and then this third one that time isn't money that yeah. time isn't of any value you will see that people will you know they'll put. Hours of their time on a fruit stand or something and they'll, they'll, they'll come out with a ten dollars or something and they and they won't think how much time they lost
0: yeah uh, no that's that's why I only I only had the realization that, that you all seem to internally know I only had that about a year ago and it's very liberating when you realize if, if you ever have a job that pays an hourly salary particularly if you're freelancing, um, I was freelancing earlier this year, and I had a specific salary. And so, if I was going to go to the doctor for an hour, it, it wasn't—it wasn't just the cost of the doctor. It was also that I was going to be missing that much uh, pay for the the two hours that I took off to get there and leave. And then, conversely, I feel a little bit more liberated if I do spend something uh, on on somebody else doing uh, a specific task or labor, but it saves me three hours in the process. That's fantastic. I'm, that's a good deal for me. That's that's right. How how do I mow my lawn? I- I, I, I write papers, right? The time, you know, the, the, or I give
2: talks, right? The the time I spend doing those other things earns me the money to pay someone else to mow my lawn, right? whose whose time is less valuable than mine is. It's, yeah,
1: it's a funny thing that by and large academics are the worst at valuing their time. They will spend hours and hours on the most meaningless disputes, uh, <laughs> uh, as if it, there was no economic value to their time. Well two, well, uh, I mean,
2: two yeah. oh, oh. tenure ten and a salary'll do that, right?
0: <laughs> it does. <laughs> well, I must warp it slightly, it, I imagine. I, I does,
2: mean, well but but right, Paul, on the margin, right? What's another hour on the margin? That's, yeah, that's, okay, okay. All right. That's yeah, well, part of it. I, I agree with you in general, but I can you know I, at some level I get it.
0: Uh, well, to to jump a little bit, one of the other things that I wanted to talk about with this particular film, we, we've we've hit some economic, uh, uh, excellent economic concepts so far. But one of the other ones I wanted to talk about is that there's there's sort of this um, eyeballing each other to see who's going to shoot the other one first throughout the film. And yeah. we we to spoil it, we realized that uh, the 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 pioneer and, and curtain are or the 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 uh, prospector and curtain are both genuinely good people, whereas Humphrey Bogart's character just gets worse and worse. But uh, about halfway through the film, I wasn't entirely sure how that was going to go. I knew that Bogart was getting bad, but the the pioneer would kind of glance at either one of them uh, when they were discussing, you know, their cut, and and I'm wondering, well, maybe this guy's actually going to, you know take all their stuff while they're sleeping and leave. And uh, it, it, to me, gets to one of the, the issues of business, which is that there is a huge amount of value in having a reputation which can be depended on and trusted, uh, because yep. if you don't have some sort of social proof going in, people are less likely to enter that deal with you. And we see that writ large in the film because they're not exactly in a, in a stateless society, but they're in a part that has no active government in it and no society. It's just them. Uh, and uh, you see that a little bit on the internet today too. You know that's why uh, why Yelp and uh, and various organizations are, are uh, doing well because they're able to lend that social credibility to groups that you otherwise know nothing about.
2: Yeah, I, I think the issue of trust and the sort of you know you could do a great game theory paper right on on, on how the interaction among the three of them and how they try to establish trust and just as you say how they try to generate uh reputational capital in a world where there's no external enforcement uh how, you know how do you know when to trust and not to trust there's that wonderful scene with the two of them refusing to go to sleep right
1: yeah, so that's the it, perfect scene
2: for the yeah and 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 that's it right there and it and that one is a kind of you know, that's a prisoner's dilemma problem right because right. you know if, if if once you have the two guys there and they have playing this game of trust or not trust, Okay, they would like to both trust each other. But no matter what the other one does, they're better off not trusting. Right. So so if the other one trusts, well, then you don't. So they're they're they're. you can always gain by, by, by picking the, what turns out to be the collectively inferior strategy. So they're both exhausted and, you know, and then we know what happens after that. Um, So yeah, there's, I mean, that was to me really fascinating. The, the interaction among the three of them trying to figure out who they were going to trust. And then there's the whole, how are we going to split this up stuff? Great, great stuff about how you, how you, you know, the uh, evolution of rules and fairness and trust, really good stuff. Uh, On, on a,
0: on a, cultural note, one of the things that I found interesting about the film was how incredibly cavalier and casual they were about the violence in it. Uh, there's there's a good bar fight scene in it uh, at the beginning, but even uh, they, they decide in this kind of prisoner's dilemmas moment, um, a, a fourth person wanders up and basically says, you're either going to let me in, into your company, uh, or uh, I, I guess you could, you know, make me leave but i'll probably tell somebody or you can shoot me and they uh they decide to shoot him and the 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 prospector's against it but then he gets peer pressured into it which i thought was kind of interesting that he was like all right if you guys are going to shoot him i guess i'll shoot him too then they're interrupted by the bandits coming in but uh, there was a lot of good like 1950s sort of hyper masculinity in the film
1: yeah that's what you expect from john houston i would like to say this though. In some ways, the film is trying to show all this and and say, and that's what human society is like. And to that, I would have to say, these are enormously artificial and unusual situations. Uh, Essentially, you've taken away everything that normally allows people to trust each other. And then you say, oh, yeah, human beings can't trust each other. Right. Uh, that is, you've taken them out of an environment they know. There are no families present. There are no neighbors present. Uh, it, it's very close to what Hobbes imagines the state of nature to be, for example. And sure, then you see people uh, disposed to violence and having to anticipate uh, attacks from others Uh But one shouldn't infer from this film that this is a good image of what human life is like uh, in a society where economic interchange has, in fact, built trust over the years.
2: Yep, there's a wonderful book. I don't know if you've read it, Paul, but a wonderful book by Paul Sebright called The Company of Strangers. Uh, that talks about the, th- this issue and how modern uh, you know, market societies generate this trust and turn strangers into honorary friends. Yeah. Um, and it's a wonderful bit of sort of economic anthropology. And just as a point, I, we had a Sunday afternoon, our hot water do- uh, went out, and we had to call a you know, repair guy to come in. And so when you think about it, it's weird. We let this guy into our house who I've never met or seen before in my life, comes parading into my house, fooling around with my boiler in the basement, Right? And he came back the next day and came, came into the house before I got home. Why do we trust people like that? Well, he's got the uniform. We know the organization he works for has a reputation. Right? There's all these social institutions that signal trust to us. And as Paul said, in the, in the, in the sort of stylized environment of this film, you have none of those social signals and institutions to help you know who to trust and who not to. And you really are forced back to these very primitive uh, uh, gauges of trust. And, and the whole point in society is so that we don't have to do that, right? Because we can be more certain about who we can
0: trust and who we That's, can That is an excellent point. And uh, the, the, the other bit that will add to that is that I think a lot of the time in modern society, people equate government with society, that they're, they're a think- one-to-one ratio. Uh, and that's not the case. I mean, you you, you both have mentioned um, social institutions, and we could we could have Elks Club, Rotary Club, church, synagogue. You, we can put a ton of different things in there, um, and those those are actual organizational institutions, not just cultural values that have been institutionalized. But there are all these different components that make up a society, uh, and only a small portion of that's government.
1: Yeah, uh, so there's a, another wonderful book called The Not So Wild Wild West yes. by Anderson and Hill. That's yeah. very relevant to this film because this film shows this tendency to picture the West as this Hobbesian state of nature, war of all against all, and um, uh, Anderson Hill showed that, in fact, the West was never as anarchic uh, as movies portray it, that in fact people developed all sorts of institutions, even in the absence of the state, they developed property rights uh, on their own, which later were ratified by the state, but that people Put these situations, develop ways of trusting. Them. By the way, the the TV Western dead word was superb at showing just that aspect of it. Yep.
2: Well, you know, uh, what, go, ahead. go ahead. I was just going to say one other thing in this in this movie. I wanted to make sure that we mentioned too, uh, especially since we were talking about you know in our earlier discussion about about Wally, the the sort of romantic romanticization of the past. We do have this brief portrayal of the peaceful, abundant Indians, right yeah. who you know sort of have all these resources and have all this food and and are seem much better off of course than than the banditos and, and our and our gold and our, our gold prospectors and I, I suspect that that's probably not historically accurate uh for a whole for a whole bunch of ways it's It's not clear at all. Whether they would have been any better off than, than everyone else around them, but certainly if part of the motif is to talk about how terrible you know Western societies because we can't trust each other and so on, you always can have the contrast of of the rom- of the romantic quote romantic savage or something like that. And yeah, so we start, start a little with the, bit, with
1: that. yeah, the Rousseau view of state. Yes, yes, exactly. Really interesting how these play out in Westerns, uh, uh, and you know. Uh, Property rights again is very interesting. This home, a lot of the problems uh, occur because they're outside any kind of property right regime, uh, and so many of their insecurities come from that fact. You know, they 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 they, they don't feel safe making a filing a claim on the property mm-hmm. because they think it'll be taken away from them by the big mining company again. I don't know how true that was, but but you actually see. That uh, the regime problem in this uh, uh, fantasy Mexico in the uh, film is that uh, there's, there are no enforceable laws, there are no enforceable property rights. You realize how useful those things are to an economic society.
0: There, there's a, a wonderful um, uh, comparison that I, I learned about in my, my master's degree between North, uh, South Korea and Ghana. Um, about f- I think it's 50 years ago or so, There's right after World War II, South Korea and Ghana were both incredibly poor, um, undeveloped countries, and they had the exact same GDP. Um, they were basically statistically the same in all economic factors. And, and South Korea today has a, a booming economy. They're doing very, very well. And Ghana remains very, very low in terms of GDP. And there's lots of different opinions for why this happens. But my, my assessment of it was largely what, what you're talking about, Paul, that nobody could really develop anything in Ghana because there was no protection of anything in Ghana. Uh, if you if you wanted to get a, um, a, a patent for something, it was very likely that the corrupt government official that you were going to be dealing with would just take your technology and, and go sell it himself. Uh,
1: well, and, this, is, this is Anand de Soto's uh, theory about the problems in uh, undeveloped societies, that uh, uh, people just don't have any sense that they can own something and therefore why develop the land if you're not going to own it. Uh, The flip side of that is to see that private property is what leads people to make economic progress.
2: And, and and that along with I think you know the other piece of that is the rule of law. You yes you have to believe that those who are enforcing the law are being held to the law. So you don't have the corrupt official. You don't have the you know as we see in the film the the, the sort of federalistas and all that. I mean, there's all this sort of uh, when when the when the arbiters of property rights are themselves corrupt or corruptible, then the property rights are, are, are meaningless. and so, yeah, you certainly need both. And ironically, the third thing when we think of classical liberalism, we say property rights, rule of law, and the third. Third thing we usually talk about is is uh, sound money, right? And so here we have, you know, in this film we we have that sort of. Going too right that that uh, the sort of search for gold and and, and all that is is, is part of the story.
1: And gold is twenty dollars an ounce. Twenty yes. an ounce. Please, uh, yeah. <laughs> Franklin D. Roosevelt.
2: Yeah, nineteen cents a gallon gasoline. All oh, it's the old it's the olden days.
0: Yeah, I I I meant to run that through my my inflation calculator, but I imagine it would still be worth quite less uh, than than today, even if we translated that into twenty fourteen dollars. Uh, just yeah, given that going on. Well, we've we've talked a little bit about uh, property rights and the stability of the regime. Um, I, I want to slant towards the the psychological for a little bit before we head out. Um, Humphrey Bogart at the beginning of the film talks about how you know if if, if he went in going going to get twenty five thousand dollars worth of gold, that's all he'd get and he'd be content, and then he'd he'd move on from there. And uh, later on, he he says explicitly, I don't know, seventy five thousand is a good start, but we should really stick around for one hundred fifty thousand a piece and that kind of thing. Uh, sure. Do you think that when it, when it comes to, to greed uh, that manifests in, you know, outright unscrupulous behavior and uh, um, avarice and, uh, you know, illegal activity, that that's something innate to people? Do you think it's something that just happens under various circumstances?
2: You know, I, there's a human dis- propensity to want to have more, right? Yeah. Um, and and, to, and to, to, to meet our own needs. And, you know, good, as, as Hayek said, right, good social institutions are ones that 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 uh, minimize the impact that bad people can have right so so we, we you know uh, you can believe that human nature is, is 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 you know self-oriented and greedy I I, I don't always like that word greed because it but but are at least oriented to the self the question is what kind of institutions can we construct that channel that self-interest in ways that lead to good consequences for others so so yeah I mean I do think there is this human tendency and it was a it was interesting to watch that scene I'm off to Las Vegas this weekend and I love to play blackjack and I know that feeling as a blackjack player, right? Where you start to win, you go,
1: ah, let's keep going. Let's, let's keep going. You know, it's it's not irrational behavior. I mean, if you find that you've gotten twenty five thousand dollars already and it didn't kill you, you still have energy, there still seems to be more gold, it's only gonna take a little more effort, a marginal effort, and you've you've put so much of the work in already, you've built the sluice. You got the hardest part done. Now you're just kind of harvesting the gold. That doesn't seem strange me at all. Now, you shouldn't kill people to get the extra money, uh, especially you kids listening at home. Uh, you shouldn't kill people. But 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 uh, 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 in itself, that's not irrational to reevaluate things on the basis of your experience. Say, hey, if I put in a little more extra time, I'll get a lot more extra money at this point.
0: Yeah. And, uh, and I don't think very many people uh, in, in other careers would, would cap themselves. Like if I if I were a neurosurgeon, I don't think I would work uh, until I'd earned, you know, $50,000 that year and gone, you know, I've hit my cap. I, I think I'm just going to sit the rest of this out. Uh, there would be no point to it. And to, to go back to Steve's point earlier about greed, um, I'm, I'm reaching the point where I think greed is almost a, a nonsensical term in our culture now, uh, or, or I should say an, an amoral with an A uh, term in our culture because it, it's this. there's this sort of vague idea that wanting money is bad, but everybody actually wants money. Um, and it, when, you, when you flip it around, I think like uh, Adam Smith talked about how you know, the, the, the man selling you bread isn't doing it because he's a humanitarian. He's selling it out of economic self-interest. And everybody has economic self-interest. So if you're trying to apply the label of greed outside of illegal activity, it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense anymore.
1: Yeah. would you want the greatest neurosurgeon in the world to stop performing neurosurgery cuz he'd reached his cap
0: right well, cuz he people? had to go mow his lawn you know yeah, <laughs> yeah right yeah
1: yeah,
2: yeah. Right. no that's no i think that's right and 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 greed you know, greed is 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 self is self interest that someone else doesn't like, basically, right? I mean, it's you know, it's it, 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 that's all you can you can't define it in any kind of objective sense because in, if it if it's the equivalent of self interest, then we're all greedy, we're all self interested. When one becomes the other, can, I don't know how you can define it in any way that's not arbitrary.
0: Yeah,
1: I agree <laughs> with you. Well, uh, it's all something greed when someone's making more money than you are. <laughs> there, there you go. <laughs>
0: Which, which actually, we, we can end on this too. That that brings into the whole idea of, of wealth envy, uh, which which occurs a lot. Um, I think we've we've talked a little bit about um, relative growth versus absolute growth, and that, that's something that I'm very aware of when I when I assess um, economic situations and tax situations and politics. Uh, that you know, if, if we're all out there, let, let's say hypothetically that the three of us are, are out there, um, and uh, uh, Humphrey Bogart, um, one of us is Humphrey Bogart, which meant that he covered the other guys in on it. Um, if he had well, taken, well, he don't a, calls
2: the prospect. So, one, it's either you or me, Andrew.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll be Humphrey Bogart for this, for this one. I'll, okay, I'll, I'll be least, the evil fellow. At least I live this way. Uh, so, 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 you know, but in that circumstance, um, he, he fronts the initial capital to take care of uh, Curtis's uh, uh, entry into this venture. And, and later on mentions, you know, I'd be within my right to demand more of the share. And I was yeah. watching, it going, oh, you would actually you you fronted the capital for it, and and there would be nothing wrong with it. There, there's a good scene in the film that I I, I like, where um, the the fourth man that was going to join them, that he, he dies in the bandit raid. Um, they're they're discussing it, and they're saying, well, he's not wanting our, our previous profits, he's not actually stealing anything from us, he's basically just wanting to add to the. Um, he, he's wanting a cut of future profits, and granted, he's entering that business transaction through a fairly dubious means, but um, the the, the A prospector in this instance is assessing them, assessing the situation and accurately pointing out that they're not actually being hurt by him developing wealth in this venture. And I I think a lot of the time people fall into that of if if I'm making $10 and you're making $20, that just kind of pisses me off. And I want to try and figure out a way to limit the amount of money you're getting, even if I have to get, you know, $8 in the process.
2: And and, and notice the problems they had in sorting all that kind of stuff out that you've just talked about is a perfect example of the regime issues here, right? There's no you know, what would you normally do? You drop a contract, yes. right? You write That's up a contract yeah. and say, here's how we're going to do it. But they have no confidence at all that that would be honored by the courts or by anyone else. So they have to work where we get the term gentleman's agreement.
1: And it turns out one of them's not such a gentleman. So yeah. what Bogart, uh, what Dobbs says is in any civilized place, the biggest investor gets the biggest return. That's not simply not true. It depends how the contract is written. Uh, the entrepreneur might get more than the investor because he's contributing more. So indeed, there's no, the, what they needed was a contract.
0: All wonderful things. I, uh, I've particularly enjoyed this podcast because we, we not only got to uh, discuss the, the prospector being the archetype of old, old-timey prospectors and all the, the great stuff in the film, but we've covered a huge gambit of economic thought in the process. So uh, I, I give us and, an A-plus on this
1: one. Can yeah, I go literary on you for real? Please one do. Moment? This story is the same story as. Geoffrey Chaucer's The Pardoner's Tale in the Canterbury Tales. This is an ancient story. It actually goes way back was uh, originally told in some Buddhist tale. Uh, it appears in Rudyard Kipling's The Second Jungle Book and in fact in the Alexander Corra movie of The Jungle Book. There's frankly an even better treatment of this situation, Three Men with a Treasure and what happens to them and how they kill each other and so on. So it this it's the story is positively medieval and indeed, reflects pre-modern thoughts about economics. That's why it's so wrong. In fact.
0: Yep. Well put. Uh, well, uh, and I just uh, want
1: to show I am a literature
0: professor. <laughs>
1: well, well done. Questioning it's it. Very odd. not a talk on the uh, This see, guy can't be a literature. Professor.
2: <laughs> and here's the thing, Paul. I was going to make a point about how how now I know where the famous bean scene in Blazing Saddles came from. That's all I got. So. Yeah.
0: Oh, I forgot about that. You're right. Well, uh, all sorts of gold in there, both in terms of stinking badges and uh, in terms of economic theory. Gentlemen, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much, and I look forward to our next chat.
1: Yeah, a lot of fun.
0: This has been the Econ Pop Podcast. Thanks for listening. For more information about our show or to visit our archives, go to econstories.tv. To watch the Econ Pop web series, go to youtube.com econstories. It's like this show, only shorter and with moving pictures.